Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. My name is Logan, and while he was still speaking with the crowds, his mother and brothers were standing outside waiting, wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to the one who was speaking to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. Thank you, Logan, for reading. Thank you, Avery, for leading us in worship through song. I invite you to take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, we'll be continuing our sermon series in the um, gospel according to Matthew. And so that's why I'm having you turn to Matthew chapter 12 pretty intuitive. While you're turning there, I'd love to continue this posture of worship uh, to our Father by praying together. So let's pray. Our Father, we recognize, Lord, in the stillness that you are here. And in the silence, you are here. And we recognize, Lord, that you are high and lifted up, exalted above all the rulers and authorities, above all principalities and powers of darkness. You, Lord, are sovereign. And we also know, Lord, that these powers and principalities are taking our eyesight and they are dragging it down. They're taking our hearts and they're leading them astray. They're taking our ears and they're stopping them up so that we too easily can't hear you and we too easily get distracted. So, Lord, in this moment, I I just ask that you would give us an open-handed posture. I ask that you would give us an open-handed posture in our hearts, that Lord, as they've wandered this week, as they've doubted this week, as they've questioned this week, you would do what you always do and you would gently and lovingly shepherd us back home. God, as our minds have wandered this week, as our thoughts have gone astray afar, Lord, I just ask that you would remind us of your forgiveness. You would be true to who you say you are. You would pray for us as you say you do. You would intercede for us. And that you would quiet our our, our minds right now, Lord. And for our ears that we constantly fill with so many things, God, I just, again, I just ask that 
the voice of the enemy, the voice of distraction, the voice of anxiety would be silenced right now. That we might hear and that what we see would be different, what we seek would be different. And Lord, it's not to us, but to your name be the glory forever and ever. We pray all these things in your son's name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And all God's children said, amen. It's a joy to be with you guys today. We're, uh, by way of reminder, we're continuing our, our series in the gospel according to Matthew. We're gonna be finishing up Matthew chapter 12 today. And the gospel according to Matthew is all about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. That's what it's about. It is about the fact that God and his great love for us did not leave us to our own devices. He didn't leave you in your sin. He didn't leave you in your wandering thoughts. He didn't leave you in your anxiety, but he actually brought his presence, his goodness, his glory to us that we might live through him. And Jesus is far more than just teach us how to die. He actually teaches us how to live. And that's what the gospels are about. We are seeing what the kingdom of heaven looks like day in and day out. So that, and the goal of this is that as we meditate on these scriptures, as we meditate on the gospel especially, we don't just learn like that we can, you know, die and go to some magical good place. We actually learn how to live better right now as citizens of a different kingdom. It changes, it's, it's, it's beyond the question of what would Jesus do? Right, that's, remember those bracelets, WWJD? It's beyond that question. It's, okay, if Jesus were in my situation, because obviously it's hard to ask that question. Like, what would Jesus do? He'd be in first century Palestine walking with sandals and itinerant preacher who didn't have a home, right? That's, that's a little beside the point. The question rather is, as we're looking at the gospels and as we're looking at Jesus interact with people and show us what the kingdom of heaven is like and live the Sermon on the Mount out, we start asking ourselves, all right, if Jesus were in my situation right now, with my relationships, my job, my money, my whatever, how would he approach this? What's a, what's a kingdom living that we can enter into as we meditate and we look to Jesus first? So we've divided Matthew up into five, um, sec, five movements. There are five big teachings in Matthew, five huge, just like the, the narrative just stops and Jesus just gives like massive teachings. So we've kind of structured our sermon series around these five movements of Matthew. And actually you can look here, Next slide, perfect. Uh, Matthew, the kingdom of heaven. The first uh, movement was chapters one through seven and it ended with Jesus' significant teaching that we know as the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five, six, and seven. And this is like the magnum opus of Jesus. If you were to ask Jesus any given day, what, or if you were to think, what was Jesus teaching on, on every, any given day? Odds are it would be something from the Sermon on the Mount. Last fall we did uh, uh, the second movement uh, was that last fall? Yeah, last fall we did the second movement, chapters eight through 10, and at the end of that movement, Jesus has what's called the missional discourse. He brings his disciples in. He's like, all right, everybody, come in. You've seen me do miracles. You've seen me teach. You've seen me heal. Now I'm going to send you out and do likewise. That was Matthew chapter 10, and now we are in movement three. We're in movement three, and we're, what's been happening so far in the narratives of chapter 11 and chapter 12 is that Jesus is starting to uh, bump up against a lot of uh, opposition. It's like the volume is turned up on responses to Jesus. Before it was kind of like, okay, who's this guy? People weren't really like offended. But in this movement especially, it's like the volume is just turned up. People start to get mad. Uh, John the Baptist, if you remember back in uh, chapter 11, he started to doubt and his expectation, he's like, are you sure you're the, you're the right guy? The Pharisees started calling Jesus a drunkard. They called him Beelzebul, the leader of the demons. They actually started to plot uh, his death 
So like uh, his crowds, actually multiple, multiple disciples were starting to question him, like what, what's going on? This is not what we expected, what's, what's happening? The volume's turned up on different responses to Jesus. Uh, and so a few weeks ago, uh, we looked at um, Jesus actually condemned three different cities. I don't know if you remember that. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. So he's, he, Jesus himself is also starting to get a little more provocative in his, in his language. And he had these Sabbath controversies. He started kind of yelling at people. He, he, he basically um, uh, told people like, hey, if you want to follow me, you have to just give up everything you have and you have to follow me. A couple weeks ago, Tom preached on Jesus healing a demon and then getting called a demon, like ruler of the demons. And then last week, Nate talked about Jesus basically saying, look, I'm not here to be your DoorDash delivery guy. I loved that when he said that. I'm not here to be your DoorDash delivery guy. Ring the doorbell, give you your religious goods and services, and then walk out of your life. Jesus is here to move in. He wants your everything. In the words of Dylan Dyer, Jesus is a terrible negotiator. He doesn't want part of you. He wants all of you. And now we get to a point where Jesus starts talking about family dynamics and it could seem like family dynamics, okay, now he's talking about brothers and sisters, and okay, cool, Jesus is like saying, we're a new family, yay. But actually, Matthew intentionally placed this at the end of all these controversy stories and these um, uh, response stories because this is actually the most provocative of any that we've heard yet. In today's text, the volume is amplified even more, and you'll see what I mean in a second, because this text is often unintentionally downplayed in our society, right? It typically, this is how this text is interpreted, right? Jesus is speaking to his disciples. His mom and his brothers are outside. Mark adds, and his sisters, they're outside. And Jesus is like, well, now this is my new family, right? And we think, oh, yay, Jesus is so sweet. We're now brothers and sisters. We're in the family. That's typically how this text is interpreted. And while that's true, right, God is, God is more important. We are, are a new family. Uh, it, it, it's even more important, and it, it actually is amplified even more when we understand what family dynamics were like in the first century, in Jesus' world. Because um, a lot of times, our definition of family, we've kind of lost its, it's kind of lost its um, luster, its power, right? Like we have a family for everything. Oh, this is my work family, right? Or this is my, you know, brunch, Saturday brunch or Sunday brunch family or whatever, or my personal <clears throat> least favorite. This is my CrossFit family. This is my workout family, you know? Like we just have families for everything, right? No offense if any of you are in a CrossFit family and you call me family. But we have families for everything. My point is this, is that the word family in our society really has lost its, we use it for everything, right? Not a bad thing, it just is. And that is not the case with Jesus' world. Uh, and we're gonna see why in a second. And in fact, to add more confusion to this, there are other times in Matthew that Jesus talks about family, and it's kind of confusing. These will be up on the screen. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus said, uh, it says this, 21 and 22, Lord, another of his disciples asked, first let me go bury my father. Sounds like a reasonable thing to do. And Jesus said, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. What on earth does that mean? That's kind of uncomfortable. Did he just tell this guy to go skip his dad's funeral? Like, what, what is Jesus saying here? Next passage, chapter 10, verse 16, or verse 21. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rise up against their parents and have them put to death. Jesus said this. That's intense. Next slide, chapter 10, verse 34. I did not come to being, being priest, being priest, bring peace but a sword. I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. The one who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
The one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Luke adds, in fact, if you don't hate your father, your mother, or your brothers or sisters or children, you are not worthy of me. This isn't, even in our society, this is like, whoa, Jesus, what, what are you doing? And here he says to his mom and his brother, he's like, yeah, you're not my mom and my brother. These are my mothers and brothers and sisters. And so I think one, one thing that we have an opportunity to do is we can sit in this tension because this is not, I think a lot of times we like to brush over Jesus' teachings like this and like, oh, well, it gets better and he's just relativizing family. But, but this, is, this is tough, this is difficult. Jesus says some very difficult things and, and we, we should not run from that. We shouldn't, in the words of one scholar, he said, we shouldn't try to domesticate Jesus' teachings. Jesus' teachings, especially today, are, are not just over-spiritualizations of things, they're actually real. And it's actually gonna get worse before it gets better. And the tempting part is to jump to the it gets better part and skip the worst part. But if we forget, if we don't, if we don't enter into what Jesus is saying, Jesus' world and his time, then we won't be able to appreciate what he's doing. So in our culture, like I said, family has kind of lost, the word family has kind of lost its value, but this is not so in, in Jesus' world. So there are actually three cultural shifts we wanna talk about before we get back to this text. So we're gonna jump back, we're gonna understand family in like the first century New Testament world. Then we're gonna enter back into this text. And in the New Testament world, here's the first cultural shift. New Testament world is this. The group took priority over the individual. This is what sociologists call a strong group or a collectivist group mentality. We live in what sociologists call a weak group or an individualistic society. Don't think like weak as in like the opposite of like strong. I guess it is the opposite of strong. Don't think weak as in like lame. Think weak as in like, no, we're just very individualistic, right? And in most parts of the world uh, and most human history, this was true. The group took priority over the individual. In America, our individual desires, our identities, our purposes take the center stage, right? We're like individual pool balls, right? Where we, we have our own path and then sometimes we bump into each other, but really we're, we're doing our own thing. But in the first century uh, Israel context where Jesus is, it was a strong group or a collectivist group society and it's more like everybody was like individual knots in this big net where you're connected with the people around you. So as this pulls one way, you're pulled with it. So here's a few examples, if this is kind of theoretical. Here's a few examples. First is marriage. Marriage was primarily for the betterment of the family, not necessarily the individual happiness of the, in, of the individual, the happiness of the individual. And don't think like this is an oppressive thing. Like this is actually good. Like these were their desires too. Like we married to, to bring the family more people, more products, more um, land, more different things. And it was, it was good to carry on the, the family name. Work. Work was what your parents did. Like that's it. What your job was, was what your parents did. And it wasn't a bad thing. It was like, no, I'm, I'm going to be a fisherman because my dad was a fisherman and his dad was a fisherman and this, that, and the other. And it's actually better for the family, your desires were kind of created by the group, your identities were created by the group, and then location, location where you lived, that was, de- that was determined for you too. And it wasn't, wasn't a bad thing, it was just, it, wa- it was what it was. And so the people that you move and connected with are the people that are closest to your group. So the individual desires, your individual identity, your purposes are the desires of the group as a whole. A, 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 la- a famous example of this in American context would be um, when JFK said, ask not, I'm gonna make sure I get this right, what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country, right? Which that phrase would actually fall on deaf ears today. Everybody's like, no, I want my country to do this for me and that for me, and this is my, like it's all about me, the, the individual. So first thing in the New Testament world is that the group took priority of the individual. That's a culture shift. Second thing in the New Testament world 
A person's most important group was the family. A person's most important group was the family. Today, that is not so. We can just decide, it's not always not so. We can just decide our most important group, right? But in the first century, the family line was passed through the male, so marriage, again, wasn't the, it wasn't actually the ultimate and the strongest bond, the kin, the family was. And uh, marriage was for the honor and the wealth of the kind of um, patriarchal kin and line right there. So a person's most important group was your blood family. And then last thing, third, the closest family bond was between siblings. This one's fascinating to me. The closest family bond was between siblings. Blood ran deeper than marriage in first century world. Here's a few examples. Uh, Herod, uh, the great, or Herod, who was the guy who killed all the babies in Bethlehem when Jesus was born, he married this woman named Miriam, and Herod's sister, Salome, didn't like Miriam. Classic, you know, family rival. Like, ah, I don't like your wife, or whatever. I don't know if that's classic, but I don't like your wife. And what happened was, instead of Herod defending his wife and saying, whatever, you're my sister, it doesn't matter, he divorced his wife to be with his, not like, be, like to be with his family. And so blood ran deeper than marriage. Here's another one. Famously, Mark Antony and Octavia. You guys are like getting your Roman history uh, facts down. Mark, t- Mark Antony and Octavia. A little, little before Jesus, Rome was split into two. Octavian had uh, the West, and he was Caesar Augustus, and Mark Antony ruled in the East. And so to save the nation from another civil war and them just continually dividing and being at war with each other, they made a marital agreement where Mark Antony would marry Octavia, Octavian's sister, and eventually what happened is that marriage didn't work out and uh, 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 Octavia said to Octavian, like, I don't, I don't wanna be with him anymore. And so instead of, again, the brother saying, well, you just you know, protect the marriage, they got divorced and they split again. The bond between the sibling was more valuable and important than the bond between the spouse. Last example, Archelaus, Archelaus. In early in Matthew, it says that Joseph saw a vision and Herod had died and so Joseph was told to go back to um, Bethlehem. But it said while he was on the way, he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Herod, his father's place, and he got scared and so he ended up going to Nazareth. You guys remember this? Matthew chapter two, Matthew chapter three. And the reason he was scared is because Archelaus was awful. I mean, he was worse than Herod, his father. I mean, he would just murder everybody. He murdered his own children, by the way, because he didn't want them to like coo up against him and like rise and like be the throne. So, a group of Jews from Palestine got on a boat, went to Rome to protest against Archelaus. They're like, we don't like this guy. But they couldn't kill him because he was half Jewish. It was a whole thing. They said, we don't like this guy. While they were in Rome, uh, more Jews in Rome also went to Caesar and they were like, we don't like this guy. Get Archelaus out of here. So Archelaus had to defend himself. So he goes to Rome. From, he leaves Israel, Palestine. He goes to Rome. And while he's in Rome, there's this revolt the Jews are like, Archelaus is gone, we can get freedom, like, let's go. And so there's this little revolt, and eventually Rome, you know, with their powerful thumb, they just squash them out. But what was interesting is that on Archelaus's stand when he was in the court trial or whatever, his siblings, listen to this, his siblings wouldn't cast a vote against him, right? But they wouldn't cast a vote for him either. As in, they also didn't like, they didn't like Archelaus. All of his siblings, they're like, we don't like our brother. Like, he's the worst. So they didn't vote for him. Like, yeah, he's a great guy. But they also didn't condemn him and vote against him either. So what happened then is Archelaus gets back and uh, Caesar Augustus, or Augustus, sorry, 
he finds out what Archelaus' siblings did, and he also finds out about the revolt. Remember, Archelaus is gone, the revolt happened. He finds out about the revolt, he finds out what Archelaus' sisters did, brothers and sisters did, and he pardons all the Jews who revolted, but he kills all of Archelaus' brothers and sisters because they wouldn't support him. They also wouldn't condemn him, but they wouldn't support him. Here's what Joseph Hellerman says. He says this, it's a, it was a disgrace for a person to take sides against a member of his blood family, even if the family member's behavior was totally reprehensible. Augustus could indulge a few hundred rebels, but he could not tolerate the betrayal of a sibling. The bond between the siblings, the blood relatives, was deeper and more powerful than any other relationship ever, marriage, anything like that. So if you lose a sibling or are separated from a sibling in the first century, then it is the biggest shame and or heartache. And if the most important relationship in the world is the bond of siblings, then the discord between siblings is probably the worst family tragedy. Are we starting to see this, the, the cultural shifts that take place? We, we, have, we have the fact that the group took priority over the individual in the first century, New Testament world. A person's most important group was the family and the closest bond was between siblings and ours is not this at all. Ours, in our context, in our society, the individual takes priority of the group. Well, my way, my desires, my, my heart. Actually, can you go back, keep that up one more second? Perfect. Uh, in our context, a person's most important group is just the people I choose it to be. Could be my family, could not be my family. And then in our context, the closest family bond typically, societally, is between marriage, husband and, husband and wife. So th- all of these shifts are taking place in our, in our context and in our, in, our, in our presuppositions. And this, with all that information, let's look again at what Jesus says about family, okay? So we have this context and this picture of what it was like, what family was like, but let's look again at what Jesus says about family and see if we can hear him a little more exactly. Look down with me at verse 46. Chapter 12, verse 46. While he was still speaking, this is Jesus still speaking with the crowds, His mother and brothers were standing outside wanting to speak to him. Somebody told him, verse 47, look, your mother and your brothers, they're standing outside wanting to speak to you. All right, let's pause right here. Church history tells us that Joseph, Jesus' dad, died when Joseph was in his late teens, early 20s. And so that means that Jesus is the firstborn son, right, of, of Mary. And as the firstborn son of a family whose father has died, what is your primary responsibility? Well, If the group takes priority over the individual, then my primary responsibility as a firstborn son is to take care of my family, It's to take care of the business that my dad did, the job that my my dad did. It's to make sure mom and the other siblings get provided for, they get money, they get their land, maybe I do a marital agreement and we, we get this whole thing figured out, right? And what's Jesus been doing up until this point? None of those things. He's been walking around from rural town to rural town He's been touching lepers. He's been teaching on hilltops. He's been ticking off the Pharisees. He's been saying some weird things about family and following him and trees and snakes and all these things. And now he's teaching in this little rural town. His mother and his brothers are wanting to speak to him. That's what it says right there. They're wanting to speak to you. And we don't know exactly why his his mother and brothers wanted to speak to him. Some scholars suggest they were embarrassed um, because he just got called a devil and he was doing all these weird things and he was kind of bringing shame on them. Um, But we do know that his mother and brother are outside. They can't get to him. We also know that the family is the deepest and most defining relationship you have in the world. So if you're a first century person reading this verse, you're reading this and you're saying, oh, I know what Jesus is gonna do. I know the next verse. And it says this, and Jesus got up, he 
dismissed the crowds, and he went to his mother and his brothers to see what was going on. Because that's what you do. That's what you do if you're living in the first century and you're the oldest, the firstborn son, and your mother and your brothers are out there because the family is the, is the strongest bond, and it's your brothers, and the sibling relationship is the primary bond in all relationship. And what does Jesus say instead? Verse 48. He replied to the one who was speaking to him, Who? Who is my mother and who are my brothers? In a single question, Jesus just turned the tables on the most profound, the most important, and the most significant relationship and group in the known world, and he did it in an honor-shame culture, which would have surely brought shame to his family. This is more than just a little uncomfortable. This is more than just a little bit rude. This is an upheaval of the most prioritized bond in his culture. Makes me ask the question, what are our strongest loyalties to? What did the family bring you back then? Brought you a sense of purpose? Brought you a sense of belonging? And it brought you financial stability? Where do we get our sense of purpose? Our sense of belonging? Our sense of financial stability? And might Jesus be asking us where our priorities truly are? Thankfully, Jesus doesn't stop there. He doesn't deconstruct the family just to deconstruct the family. He actually doesn't, he doesn't tear the family apart and say whatever. He actually, he creates from this. Look at verse 49. Stretching out his hand, literally with his hand over his disciples, he said, here, these ones are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus uprooted one construct of family, not to abolish it and create havoc, but to create a new set of loyalties, a new family. And remember, not family like you're thinking about, like work family or CrossFit family, right? This is a family that where the group takes priority over the individual. So not only is the individual obligated to the group, but the group is also obligated to the individual. Think of the church in Acts chapter two. Everybody, nobody had any need, why? Because everybody was family. They were all interacting with each other, caring for one another, put, putting out their needs. Hey, I need help, I need this. Okay, you need this, I've, I can help you with that. A person's most important group was the family. Guess what, you don't get to choose your family. Think of, think of how we're, we're called, what, what are we called in, in the entire corpus of the scriptures, right? We're called children. We're adopted into God's family. If you're adopted and parents and a couple adopts you and they already have children, you don't get to choose your brothers and sisters. You just are now in the family with these brothers and sisters. And the closest family bond is between siblings. What are, what are disciples of Jesus called throughout the entire New Testament? Brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters. I urge you, brothers and sisters. I long for you, brothers and sisters. In Hebrews, it says Jesus is our brother, the strongest, most primary, deepest, intimate loyalty between two people was the siblings, and Jesus is now saying, I am that for you, and you are that for each other. Which means that other disciples of Jesus, other followers of Jesus, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, as it says right there in verse 50, we'll talk about that in a minute, 
are my brother and my sisters. And this is way more than just, oh cool, we have, you meet another Christian. Oh cool, we have the same worldview or whatever. This means that now, by adoption into the family of God, you have a closer bond with, a relationship with, and an obligation to them than you do anybody else. Blood family included, if they're not following the Lord. Now you're saying, you might be saying right now, wow, geez, Parker, this is intense. You're, are you asking me to sign my life away and to completely reorient my priorities? And the answer is yes, but it's not. This is what Jesus is saying. Here's how Carl Truman puts it in his book, Strange New World. He says this, the strongest identities I have, forming my strongest intuition, derive from the strongest communities to which I belong. And that means that the church needs to be the strongest community to which we belong. Let me articulate this another way. Our priorities often with family, it's like with family we can often, we give our time to them, we give gifts to them, we receive gifts from them, we receive time from them, we have resources. We feel free to ask our family for things, right? Like, oh, I, I need this, I'm gonna ask my family, obviously. We, we, se- we, we seek their well-being, we seek our family's well-being, we hope that they seek our well-being. We bear one another's burdens, we selflessly give to them. We, we t- it just, it's just a natural relationship. And our priorities are often this, our priorities are often this. First, God, then it's my family, then it's the church, then it's, it's others, right? Like God, obviously, well, that's, that's good. God is, is and will be always the first priority. Um, but then we also, it's like, well, then after God, it's like, it's my family, right? Like, my family, whether or not they're walking with the Lord, like, that's, that's my family. And, and then maybe the church, but really when we say church, we just sometimes mean like a Sunday morning thing and we don't actually wanna get involved in the lives of others because maybe we've been hurt before by other churches, maybe we're just lazy and tired and we are bored and we don't like the, you know, somebody smells weird or something. And then it's others, like okay, then I'll, after this, then I'll give what else I have, have to others. And this is our priority, this is not Jesus' priorities. From this text, we see the, this is Jesus' priorities. First is God and his family. Notice, he doesn't say, well, well, you know, God, God comes first. He's saying, no, this is my mother and my brothers right here now. In other words, my, my primary responsibility, obligation to, and relationships are now these people right here. So it's God and his family. What's the greatest commandment? Love God. What's, and the other greatest commandment, also greatest, is love each other. Love God, love each other. We cannot have, uh, Cyprus um, says this, he says we cannot have God as our father if we do not have the church as our mother. Then, second, my family. Now these are not mutually exclusive. It's not like, you know, if your family is walking with the Lord and they are also disciples, then they are in God's family as well. And then it's others. And these priorities are, are who we spend our time with. They help us make decisions we have to open up to them, vulnerable, like, hey, I'm struggling with this, I need this, I, this decision in life is, is, is complicating things. And so these are Jesus' priorities. Jesus is creating a new family, the strongest bond in the first century world, first century world, and Jesus said, I'm, I'm creating a new one. I'm taking what you think your strongest bonds are, and I'm, I'm getting rid of those, not to get rid of them, but to create a new strongest loyalty and bond. So family is now reframed by Jesus and Jesus creates a new ultimate set of loyalties and priorities to its people. So the next question is, well, who? Who is that family then? Who are my mother and my brothers and my sisters? Verse 50, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, 
is my brother and sister and mother. What does this mean? What does it mean to do the will of the Father in heaven? We have overcomplicated the word will. I'm just gonna be honest. We have overcomplicated the word will. What's the will of God? We often think of the word will as synonymous with the word plan. What's the will of God for my life? What we mean is what's the plan of God for my life? And that's not what it means. That's just not what it means. God has a plan, God is sovereign. God talks about his plan a lot. But the word will is not that word. The word will is more like the word desires or wants, right? If you just do a quick search of the the Greek behind this, it will just be like desire, want, desire, wanting, did not want, had happened, want, like desire. The word will just means the word desires. So what is the will of God? Another way to ask that, what's the desires of God for you? This is why Peter says, it's not God's desire that any should perish. It's not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to a saving knowledge of him. Later uh, in 1 Thessalonians 4.3, Paul says this, this is God's will for your life. Whenever anybody asks me what's the will of God for my life, I say read 1 Corinthians 4.3. This is God's will for your life, holiness. There you go. The will of God is not synonymous with the plan of God. God does have a plan, but will doesn't mean that. So when it says whoever does the will of my father, think whoever does the desires of my father, the wants of my father, and in this exact setting, who is the one doing the will of the father in heaven? It's the disciples sitting at Jesus' feet listening to him because he he stretches out his hand and he says, these are my mother and brothers and sisters. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother and brother and sisters, i.e., these people are doing the will of my Father in heaven. And what are they doing? They're just sitting at Jesus' feet. They're following him day in and day out. They're watching what he does. They're asking him questions. They're reading with him. They're eating with him. They're being with him. They're in his presence. There's another time that Jesus says this exact same phrase, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven. And it's at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter seven, verse 21, it says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Verbatim, word for word. And where is this? Matthew seven. Where's Matthew seven? At the, what's, what's this the end of? This is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter five, chapter six, and chapter seven is the Sermon on the Mount. And what Jesus is saying here is that doing the will of the Father in heaven is living the Sermon on the Mount. That's it. God's will for your life is your sanctification, your holiness. And so to do the will of the Father is to be a person who is, who is blessed by God and by others because you're poor in spirit, you don't have anything. It's to be a person who's light in a very dark world who's salt in a tasteless generation. It's to be a person who who has this heart posture of humility where yes, yes, obviously we don't murder, but also when anger gets up in our heart, we immediately, we immediately address it with the person. We are quick to reconcile. It's to be a person who, yes, doesn't commit adultery, but also doesn't have a heart that wanders in lust and, and a mind that wanders and eyes that wander in lust. Instead, when that happens, we say, Lord, that's not me. That's not who you've created me to be. I don't want this. It's to be a person who, when somebody asks you for something, no qualifications, yes. Yeah. 
When somebody asks you for your coat or your shirt, you give them your coat too. When somebody wrongs you, slaps you on the cheek, don't retaliate. It's to be a person who, yes, loves your enemies. I'm sorry, yes, loves your neighbors, but loves your enemies. And the people who persecute you, who say wrong things about you, who gossip about you. You love them and you pray for them and you forgive them. To live the Sermon on the Mount is to be a person who practices their righteousness, but you do it so secretly, your prayer, your fasting, and your almsgiving, your giving to the poor, you do it so secretly that only your Father in heaven knows because you're not looking for a pat on the back because that's not how God works. So when you pray, you pray in, in your closet. When you, when you fast, you don't let everybody know. You, you do it in secret. And when you give to the poor, you do it so freely and frequently that your right hand doesn't know what your left hand is doing. To live the Sermon on the Mount, to do the will of God is to be a person who, 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 puts, who fills storage units and warehouses with heavenly goods, not earthly goods. If you looked at it with earthly eyes, you'd probably see it empty. Not storing up treasures on earth, but in heaven. It's to be a person, to do the will of God is to be a person who says, look, the birds, they're doing okay. The flowers, they're doing okay. If God clothes the flowers and feeds the bird, birds, I think, I'm a, little bit more, I'm a little bit worth more than they are. I think that God has everything, has given me everything I need. So I'm not gonna be anxious. We don't worry. To live the Sermon on the Mount, to, to do the will of the Father in heaven is not judging so that we won't be judged. It's not looking at somebody and immediately thinking, oh, I know what they're thinking, or oh, I know what they're gonna say, or oh, this, that, and the other. That's not ours to do. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To live the Sermon on the Mount, to do the will of the Father in heaven is to ask God and ask each other. It'll be given to us to seek him in everything and we will find to knock and the door will be opened. To live the Sermon on the Mount, to do the will of the Father in heaven is to treat others the same way that you would want them to treat you. It's entering through the narrow gate. It's being a tree that produces good fruit. And it's doing, it's actually doing all of that. Not talking about it, not thinking about it, not planning on it, but not executing it. It's actually doing it, forgiving others, letting people in. Allowing God and his family to enter your life in such a vulnerable and intimate way that you will never be the same. And guys, it's scary. We've been hurt before. People have stabbed us in the back before. Churches have hurt us before. Christ, other Christians have hurt us before. We hear, we hear, you, you hear about it and, it's, and you experience it your own time, your own, yourself. And the last thing we want to do sometimes is open up again. But also, it's no question that we are some of the loneliest people in, in today's world. We are over-connected with everybody. I have a connection with you, I have a connection with you. We have, we have unlimited friends at our fingertips and yet we're more isolated and lonely than ever before. And the reason is, is because it takes vulnerability to open up. And that's scary. To think that the people in this room are now 
my single and greatest bond and loyalties and I am obligated to them as much as they are obligated to me, which is what Jesus is saying here, to think that is terrifying. I would rather just choose the people who I like and who are gonna affirm me in what I already know and what I already believe and what I already want. I want the financial stability, I want the, the purpose and I want the sense of purpose and I want the sense of belonging to be on my terms. And what's Jesus saying here? That's, that's, not, that's not gonna happen. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, they now are my mother and my sisters and my brothers. What role is empty in that, by the way? Mother, sister, and brothers. Father. We have one Father. One Father. And God the Father doesn't have any, great, any grandchildren or any great-grandchildren. He has children and we are his children. And if children, then heirs, co-heirs with Jesus and inheriting the promises of him who reigns forever and ever. We will give up our priorities and our loyalties here and now, but I, the reward of the family that Jesus gives us, it's hard, of course it's hard. People are people and we'll get annoyed and we'll be annoying. But the reward for living in the family of God and being transformed into his image with and through each other and the Holy Spirit that lives among us is a hundredfold greater than we could ever imagine. So this is the call of Jesus, to take our priorities, to reorient them, and to realize that God and his family come first in our lives. And whoever does the will of the Father, whoever lives the Sermon on the Mount, whoever sits at Jesus' feet and listens, they are our family. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word changes us. It transforms us and it creates, it creates new, new family, new loyalty, new bonds. So, Lord, I do ask right now that you would just give us a... Um, I ask that we would see you for, for who you are and we would see this invitation for what it is. To set aside any relationships that are, are not in your priorities, to set aside any bonds or loyalties that we cling so tightly to. And Lord, give us strength and courage to open up, to be vulnerable, to love one another, to, act, to, to actually be each other's brothers and sisters. Father, we love you. We pray all this in your son's name and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening, and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at or you can find us on social media at Gospel. Mm-hmm.